It's time for the Talent Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2, a nationwide leader in background checks and employment screening solutions. People G2 gives their clients access to the best human capital management and due diligence tools available. They are dedicated to helping their clients with all of their people-related decisions. To learn more, go to www.peopleg2.com. Talent Talk centers on the topics of talent recruitment and management, leadership development, company culture, and employee engagement. These are all timely topics for CEOs, entrepreneurs, HR professionals, and business leaders. We hope that as you tune in to listen each week, whether to the live broadcast or to the podcast on iTunes or iHeartRadio, that you hear something you can take away that will help you grow and impact your career in a positive way. And now, here's the host of the Talent Talk Radio Show, the founder and CEO of People G2, Chris Dyer. Hey, good afternoon and welcome to Talent Talk. It's Tuesday, it's one o'clock and I'm excited to be here with uh, two fantastic guests. We'll be talking about talent, what makes them talented and you know how they're dealing with talent in their work. Everything from an HR perspective to what senior leaders are thinking about today. You know, I have the privilege of meeting a lot of really cool people at different conferences, events, when I'm consulting or speaking, um, or even just through LinkedIn. Uh, it's been uh, a lot of a lot of meeting a lot of cool, cool people virtually that way recently. So, I like to to have a conversation with a lot of these interesting people, and that is really where the show came out of was these conversations. Um, and instead of me having it just one on one and finding out what books they're reading, what they're thinking about, what they're worried about. We're talking about it here so everyone can hear and learn and, and understand. There's been so many wonderful stories, and I turned that into my first book, The Power of Company Culture. I'd love to have you check that out on Amazon or wherever you buy books, and you can pick up a copy. It's all a lot of the best stories of the last four or five years, thought leaders to heads of organizations, heads of HR from big, medium, and small, and just a lot of the lessons and things that we can really take back to make our cultures, our organizations better, and our leadership skills better. As I mentioned, uh, Talent Talk is live every Tuesday, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Most of you like to get us after the fact. You're like to come late to the party. That's okay. Um, you grab us on iTunes, uh, subscribe to our podcast there, and digest those when it's good time for you at the soccer game or uh, on the treadmill or wherever it may be, whenever it's good for you to listen to a podcast. And then some of you listen to us on iHeartRadio as well. So thank you, everyone, for tuning in, however you do. Um, there's been over 10,000 people a day coming in and, and grabbing one of our podcasts and listening, and it's just a really uh, fun and exciting to have so many people involved and engaged into the content we're putting out there. So big thank you. If you have any questions for my guests coming up here, it doesn't have to be just me that asks the questions. I can always use a little help. We do that on Twitter, so you can uh, add to the conversation by tweeting your question, your comment, your thought. At PeopleG2 is where you want to follow. You can also follow the hashtag Talent Talk, all one word. My producer, Mike, tries to feed me in any good questions if we get them while live in the show. But if it's after the fact, that's okay, too. Uh, we're happy to... to engage and answer questions as well and if our uh, guests have a twitter account uh, we'll tag them in those posts and you can see that there as well so speaking of my guests uh, my guests today on the show are jason greer a brain-based employment expert diversity trainer for greer consulting and then we'll bring in after the commercial break pam schmidt a consultant that specializes in the human side of business and this will be uh, Pam's second time on the show so we're excited to get an update uh, from her but let's go ahead and get to my first guest uh, Jason welcome to the show hey Chris thanks for having me absolutely well why don't you tell everyone what we should know about 
Jason Greer, what are you doing? What's important for us to know for our conversation today? And of course, everything that you're doing over there at Greer Consulting. Uh, absolutely. So my company, Greer Consulting, Inc., we are a brain-based diversity training company, and we specialize in diversity training as well as labor and employee relations. So I've had the great fortune of at times being on the road 180 days out of the year, going around to companies, both large, small, as well as not-for-profit organizations leading diversity trainings, uh, leading employee relations engagement, and ultimately trying to get people to start asking some bigger questions about their own personal stories. A lot of fun. And so maybe you can explain, you know, what the heck is brain-based diversity? What is it, you know, what does it mean? What are you doing with that? And, and maybe kind of, for someone that's maybe never heard of that, uh, give us kind of that rundown. Absolutely. So Chris, I'm sure you've been a part of a large number of diversity trainings and I'm sure many of your listeners have as well. You know, I've had the great fortune attending many different diversity trainings, and there are some wonderful trainers out there. The issue that I started to have, and I started to notice over time, was we were talking, when I say we, I'm talking people in the, in the diversity training community, we're talking more to the theoretical side of diversity. It's just because you might be white, just because I might be African-American, there's no reason why we shouldn't get along. We should be able to live together. We should be able to, you know, our kids should play together. We should be able to work together, and everything should be fine. Well, that sounds great in theory, but it's skipping some some significant steps. The perspective that we bring is, look, we all come from multiple walks of life, but the one thing that we have in common is our brain. When you consider that our society, I mean, our society is so fast-moving and it's so technologically advanced, it's amazing. The idea that my kids can sit in their bedrooms and talk to somebody in Japan over FaceTime is amazing to me. Society has changed, but the one aspect of human nature that has not evolved is our brain. Our brains are still stuck in the days of the days of our ancestors, and our brains are consistently scouring the environment for threats. And if you happen to come across somebody who doesn't look like you, doesn't talk like you, doesn't think like you, that means they're part of your outgroup. When you're in the company of someone who's a part of your outgroup, you start to tense up, you start to get a bit scared, sort of that fight or flight mode kicks in, and all of a sudden, I want to run. Versus if you're in the presence of somebody who looks like you, talks like you, thinks like you, therefore they are you, those are people that we would consider to be a part of your in-group, and these are the people we feel most comfortable with. Uh, a great example of that might be on, unless you live on a military base, on Sundays, which are generally a day of worship for many of people, when you look around the congregation, for the most part, people look alike, right? That doesn't necessarily make those people racist. It just means that they're in the company of people who make them feel good. What we do with our training is we sort of flip it on its head, and we say the one thing that we all have in common is our brain. But our brains are always telling a story about the outside world. They're telling us a story about our coworkers. They're telling us a story about... You know, the woman walking down the street, they're telling us stories about the people that we engage at your local grocery store. What we really, really work with people on is to identify what is your story. Because, Chris, when I understand what my story is, I'm better able to understand how my story relates to other people. When I'm better able to relate to other people because I'm more open and I'm more vulnerable, now we begin to break down the walls that are keeping other people in our that sort of outgroup category because the more walls I'm able to break down, the more commonalities I'm able to build, 
now that person stops being a member of my out group and now they're part of my in group. And as a result, now we've achieved diversity. And that's a pretty uh, lofty goal. It's a, it's a fantastic goal. And I think it's something that sure. you know, organizations want to get right, but have a very hard time doing. Absolutely. You know, and, and one of those things is, you know, you talk about kind of our, our brain, you know, maybe we've evolved, technology has evolved, society has evolved, but, you know, or maybe our brains haven't quite caught up yet. And a lot of that has to do with fear. Maybe we could talk about how the brain really impacts us, especially around fear and, and dealing with others, you know, especially if, if they don't, you know, initially, whether they don't look like us, act like us, you know, and give us that false sense of security that because someone is like us, they must be okay. Uh, you know, maybe you kind of break down to that fear component. Yeah, no problem. No problem. So I'll give an example. So I'm 6'3", 250 pounds. I'm a 6'3", 250 pound African-American man. And it's not uncommon for me to walk past, let's say, a woman who might be smaller than me and maybe she's dealt with someone who's as big as me if not bigger. What I notice is that when I walk past women who don't know me, oftentimes what I see is they will clutch their purse. We call it in the African-American community, we call it the clutch, right? They clutch their purse as though I'm going to steal something or as though I'm going to take something. And I guarantee you, nine out of ten times, if I were to just stop one of those women who did the clutch and, and I were to ask them, uh, ma'am, why did you clutch your purse when I walked past you? She might look at me and say, I didn't clutch my purse when I walked past you. I'm like, yes, you did. You really clutched your purse. And let's say that she turns red in the face. Let's say she gets really defensive and she's like, I didn't clutch my purse. And then I might look at her and say, ma'am, with all due respect, just look down. And all of a sudden, she sees that she's clutching her purse. Now, she might not even be aware that she has this bias. And, you know, oftentimes we talk about unconscious bias. But I generally don't believe that there's such a thing as unconscious bias. Because unconscious means that I'm off, right? Our brains are on 24-7, 365 days. And our brains are always trying to keep us safe. And as a result, we have what we call a non-conscious bias. We're in the, press, in the process of keeping ourselves safe. Our brain is telling us a story, and our brain is always scouring the environment for threats. So using the example that I just shared, I walk past the woman, she clutches her purse. She might not even be aware that she's clutching her purse. Nevertheless, she's still living in a state of fear, and she's not even aware that she's scared. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So what we do is, uh, through our training and really through, through conversation, we have to break down that non-conscious, that non-conscious bias. It's what happened to you in that moment. And it might be that maybe I reminded her of a man that she had a bad experience with 20 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, two years ago, but she thinks she's over it, but she has no idea that that wiring is still, that that story is still playing in her brain. When we're able to get people to just really hone in on what's going on, what are you feeling? And more importantly, do this in a non-judgmental manner because Chris, when we talk about diversity today it's sort of you know, what do they say don't, let's not talk about race or let's not talk about politics because they're such divisive they're such divisive topics right we challenge people to really start having those dialogues well and i noticed that um you know it's 
it's almost like laziness is the wrong word, but it's like, you know, you have to hire somebody and you're like, well, they went to the school I went to, or, you know, they know someone I know, they must be okay. Right. It's a sh- kind of a right. shortcut for us to get <laughs> sure. uh, somewhere. And I don't think it's intentional. So in that, in that regard, it's not intentional to uh, discriminate against someone or to, uh, to not bring in someone who could be good. It's just a matter it's sort of that shortcut. I went to this school, they went to this school, I'll bring them in for an interview, and suddenly they get access that somebody else doesn't get. Um, yes. And so, you know, in our organization, we intentionally try to find ways to go after people who are not like us, right? That sort of have opposite uh, characteristics. But that takes effort in understanding what you have, what are you missing, and how do you identify those people that fit those gaps that you're missing to have a difference right. of thought and you know, diversity of thought. But that really takes a real intentional thought process that you're going to do it. It takes an intentional process in measuring and figuring out what it is you really need, what it is it would, you know, quantify as being different or being diverse within their organization. And I'm not sure if you're seeing our, our, our companies actually taking the time to think of it that way, you know, or is it just, are they saying, well, we need to get more of X or Y in the door and, and they try to go and find those specific people. What, what are you sort of seeing, you know, in 2019 uh, for, for companies? I think it depends on the company. It seems that you can go to almost any company's website, any company of, of substantial size, and you can look at their website and look at their mission business statement, and then you see a diversity statement. And what I generally do is I'll look at that diversity statement, and then I'll go to their board of directors. Oftentimes, that board of directors looks absolutely nothing like the diversity in which they seem to promote. You look at the executive team, and you have some companies that are very intentional about making sure that they are diverse. And when I talk about diversity, I'm not just talking about skin color. I'm talking about gender. I'm talking about sexual orientation. I'm talking about, you know, just a variety of a variety of things that make up the human element that could bring so much to an organization. I think that the companies that I've encountered as a consultant that have been very intentional about uh, their diversity needs and diversity desires of those companies who tend to be very honest about where they are. We can all say the right things, and, you know, every year we have new buzzwords around diversity. We can say the right things, and we can give the impression to people that we want the right things. But are we really being honest about where we are, and are we really being honest about where we want to go with this? Yeah, and I think that's part of the problem is we, we, we have these new words, these new new things that come up, but it's the same you know, underlying issue, which I think oh, I appreciate you taking this sort of brain-based approach because it, it all kind of goes back to that basic, whether it's an issue or basic problem that we're all having. Do you think that we are, you know, so sort of still struggling in the same types of problems as it relates to diversity and tolerance, um, or has it gotten better? I mean, you know, if it's 2019 now, we would go back 10 years, go back 50 years. I mean, has it gotten better? Are we on the right track to get better, although maybe too slow or, uh, you know, not quite as fast as we'd like to be? But I'm, I'm wondering, do you think it's relatively the same, or has it just become better or not? That's a wonderful question. I'm going to give you give you perspective here. I was asked that question a week ago in an interview, and my immediate thought was to say, "No, things have gotten worse." You have the, you know, the incident that happened out in Washington D.C. with um, the uh, child or young man, that unfortunately referring to as the MAGA kid, uh, Nick Salmon, and the uh, indigenous elder Nathan Phillips. And I'm thinking, okay, it just seems like every other day there's some racially charged event that's happened, there's some news item that's happened, and then it hit. 
my son is nine years old, and Donald Trump is the first white president he's experienced in his lifetime. Right? Now think about that. He has had eight years, and I'm sure he, <laughs> my son was not conscious of all eight years, please understand. But he's had eight years of an African-American president, and Donald Trump was his first white president. Now I'm dating myself here, and I'll tell you that I'm 44 years old. The idea that when I was nine years old, the idea that I could be president of the United States was laughable because black people just were not president. It was aspirational, but it was not necessarily something that was going to be acceptable to society. And yet in 2008, we elected African-American. In 2012, we elected an African-American. So my answer is my long-winded way of saying that we have a long way to go. Gosh, Chris, we have done so much in this time. I think we've made so many significant strides. Well, that's a really fascinating way to look at it uh, through your, your son's eyes, because, you know, I think those those things that we see as normal as children are often those things that we're trying to undo, right? We're trying to make better or we're trying to get past whatever the sort of negatives in society is as we grow up. But from that perspective, you're saying, you know, how many children grew up that their first president was Barack Obama? And I think regardless of your political affiliation, the fact that it was a different person there right. certainly must have an impact um, on all children that they themselves could possibly you know, be president, that anyone could be, and maybe change some perspectives and change the perspective of other people as well, right? That being president doesn't mean old white guy. <laughs> that's not the that's not the only um, you know job description that you have to fill, whatever it may be. And so I'm wondering, you know, that has a really important impact. But at the same time, that means it also means the wheels of change are so slow, right? They're, they they take so long for us to get where I think a lot of us would prefer to be. In a year, it's maybe taking us generations. Um, and I don't know if the work that you're doing or, or if there's ways in which we maybe can fast forward that. I think that, you know, you consider that the Civil Rights Act was passed, what, in 1965? Right. I mean, that's not even that's not even 100 years ago, right? So the wheels of change, I do agree with you, the wheels of change seem to move so slow, but they move so fast at the same time. And, you know, I take, I think social media, I use social media as, in, as a as an example, because social media sort of connects us to a lot of people that we would never be connected to. It seems as though there are, there are divisive conversations that happen on social media all the time. I get that part. But it seems as though there are people who are allying with one another in ways that I never thought possible. It seems that there are people who are reaching across their whatever the category whatever the human category might be and reaching across the aisle so to speak and reaching out to other people and letting people know that we support when again i'll use the example of uh, nick salmon and uh nathan phillips when that issue happened in washington dc the outpouring of support that came out for nathan phillips was extraordinary on the other side of that the outpouring of support that came out for nick salmon was extraordinary but people are talking from my perspective, it's, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. I don't know if you know much about St. Louis, but St. Louis is in a type of city that has always been segregated based on race, based on politics, based on socioeconomic class. <clears throat> so historically, issues of race were always swept under the rug. 
and then Ferguson happened with the death of Mike Brown. And now all of a sudden, we could no longer sit back and just sweep these things under the rug. We had to have these conversations. Right. Now, those conversations might not always be articulate, but Chris, we're finally having those conversations throughout the nation. Well, I'm glad that we are, and it's something that, uh, you know, we hope that uh, social media, the sort of ability to reach more people and to have greater conversations and access can continue, and that we don't just also lock ourselves into our bubbles, right, to people who are like us, who look like us, who talk like us. You know, social media has that uh, ability as well, right, to kind of keep us in our little bubbles, which is always an interesting uh, problem. Uh, we'll see if they can solve that one, too. You know, we've only got a few minutes left. I want to make sure I ask you one of our favorite questions, and that is, is there a book you're reading right now or something that uh, you suggest people check out? Great question. So just finished the book, The Road Back to You, which was a suggestion from my beautiful wife, Tiffany, um, by Ann Morgan Cron. I believe I'm saying his name correctly. Wonderful book. If you really want to get a better understanding of yourself and a better understanding of other people, please read that book. And I just started The Road to Character by David Brooks. I'm only 24 pages in. I'm already in love. Great book. Well, fantastic. Um, how can people get a hold of you if they're interested in learning more, they want to maybe uh, work with your company or find out more about uh, what you're doing? What's the best way for them to do that? Hey, thank you for this. So you can feel free to reach me on my website at greerconsultinginc.com. I have a button on there where you can book a 30-minute free consultation with me. I just love having conversations with people, so feel free to take advantage of that. You can reach me on Twitter, at Labor Diversity, or you can find me on LinkedIn. Well, fantastic. Jason, thank you so much for sharing great insights on leadership. I'm sorry we weren't able to go even deeper. We, have, we can definitely have you come back at some point. We can keep this conversation going. There's so much to talk about regarding this topic and the great work that you're doing in helping companies uh, be a more diverse workplace. Yeah, I look forward to it, Chris. You're a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. All right, we'll take a quick commercial break and we'll be right back with my second guest, Pam Schmidt. Imagine buying a newspaper and discovering that the news you're reading is six months old. There isn't much that stays the same for six months. And the same thing goes for background checks. In a time when so much outdated information is being passed around, it's good to know that People G2 offers something different. At People G2, we provide today's intelligence, not yesterday's news. Our value-added approach offers you a fully FCRA-compliant solution that includes up-to-the-minute information. By combining industry-leading technology with old-school human investigation, People G2 is able to give you information that is accurate right now, delivered quickly to our online system or integrated with your HR system. So ask yourself, are you comfortable working with old news or are you ready for a different kind of background check company? Visit PeopleG2.com or call 800-630-2880. That's 800-630-2880 or PeopleG2.com. Welcome back to the Talent Talk Radio Show. Uh, in case you missed my first guest, Jason Greer, you, uh, you can listen to his interview. We'll we post this show on iTunes and iHeartRadio here within a week or two. And you can get that. Uh, go back and listen to it as much as you want. So I'm going to bring in my next guest. Uh, don't forget, you can also find us besides iTunes and iHeartRadio. You can also find us on TalentTalkRadio.com. It's a great place to search and find all the different episodes there. And we love to have you keep the conversation going with us right now at PeopleG2 on Twitter. Use that hashtag TalentTalk. You can ask questions questions, give comments and feedback. Uh, whether it's if you're listening live, it's great. We might even get one of your questions in. If it's after the show, that's okay too. 
And we'd love to keep the conversation going on Twitter. But uh, let's go ahead and get my next guest in. Uh, Pam, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself, what's important for us to know, you know, especially as it relates to our conversation today. And, you know, and mo- give us a little hint on more about your work and what you're doing. Okay, sure. Um, so my background, uh, I have a master's in applied behavioral science with a focus on organization development and leadership development. So that's uh, that's the education side of it. And um, have been involved with uh, further education in terms of working with Dick and Emily Axelrod around large group conferencing, the work that they do there. I've joined as an associate or a consultant with the Refinery Leadership Company here in Vancouver, BC, where I live. That allows me to focus a little bit more on the leadership development side of my business. Um, My own practice is a little bit more focused on organization development, so I get a really nice balance with being a consultant with them. Well, maybe we can uh, kind of start the conversation off in, in the work that you do and maybe talk a little bit about how you define culture and engagement and, and those types of really important topics. Sure. It might be easier for me to talk about what culture isn't to start with. Um, sure, sure. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, we hear a lot about it, I think, in terms of things like, you know, beer Fridays or ping pong tables and foosball tables. and What? Ping pong <laughs> tables, not culture? What? <laughs> I can't believe it. Isn't it? Isn't it? You know, know. you put one of those in the lunchroom and doesn't that create our culture? Right. And free beer on Friday. Clearly (laughs) everything's going to be okay. Right. (laughs) Oh, if only it were that simple. We're all so human, aren't we? Um, Yeah, absolutely. And so while those things, I consider them perks, they're great perks to have in a workplace. Uh, They certainly have their own um, advantage in terms of creating connection and interaction between people and probably different um, different departments and things like that. But in terms of actual culture, I think what that is, is cultures, are for, for me, it's a reflection of what's valued by the company and how, and how that kind of manifests or shows up through interaction, behaviors, those being both internal to the organization, how we, how you know, people interact with each other, but also how that ends up uh, translating to your external customers and clients, and how you interact with them, how you, you know, what your customer service is like with them, like that starts to get more at the culture. It's a little bit of those less tangible things, but but it's we all know it when we experience it. I think. No, and I was going to say, and, and I know as, as you do this work and you, you kind of begin to to really work with organizations in a very specific way, one of the things I noticed in, in researching uh, ahead of time for our conversation today is that you would like to focus in on the human side of business. And, of course, that's <laughs> culture and engagement and people and yeah. uh, as opposed to ping pong tables and beer Fridays. Um, <laughs> maybe you could unpack a little bit and talk about what you specifically do you know, as you begin to work with leaders, especially on that human part of it. Yeah, Um so oftentimes, depending on the size of the company, I think leaders sometimes either feel that they need to be able to do it all or they should have capacity to do it or um, or conversely, they feel like they don't have any ability to, you know, bring people together in a way that is engaging. 
you'd asked about like the definition of an of engagement. So you can do things that are engaging of your team and of people in the company, and they can be engaged in that moment. But that unless there's more going on within the organization around that, it won't necessarily create engagement with their work. And so my work with leaders is not only to create those moments where uh, where you get to bring people together and they get to talk and have conversations about things that are important to them. So to create those engaging moments, but then to also help leaders understand what that means or how that then needs to look once that session or that time together is is over and how that then needs to be lived within the company and the organization. And so that's things like really helping leaders understand how to connect things like their vision and their values, how that gets talked about and how they help employees connect to their work to those things so that people have a sense of, of meaning and, um, and purpose to the work that they're doing, that they understand how the work they're doing is benefiting not only the organization, but also the customers and clients that they have. Um, and so sometimes my work is, sometimes leaders really get that, that piece of it. And my my work with them is helping them uh, bring those people together in a way that's engaging and helping them really be able to show up in their leadership uh, around that. Uh, so involving them in the process as well and um, as well as allowing them time to be a participant. Um, and other times it's a little bit more involved in terms of helping leaders understand the value of bringing people together and then helping them understand as well how that then starts to need, needs to become embedded in their company. And so do you find that, you know, it's the most valuable way is to really get people to slow down, do some sort of a retreat or, a, you know, maybe a strategy session to really improve those those different areas? I, you know, typically organizations are, are, are busy. People are overworked. They don't have, you yeah. know, time to even do the things they need to do, let alone stop to, like, think about culture or think about engagement. So, right. you know, what's the best way for them to really think about doing that? You know, I think it, I think again, it comes back to what the culture is of the company. If it's something that hasn't been done before, people coming together for the first time, they're, they can be a little bit hesitant. You know, it's like, oh, you know, what's happening now and why is this happening now? So people can be a little bit more cautious. And so it takes time for people to kind of warm up. So bringing people together in that way would need to become more a part of the company's culture in even in terms of like how they lead meetings. The meetings are just like, you know, report out and data sharing, then doing something a little bit different is going to require some adjustment. And it doesn't always need to require a lot of time. Certainly, if the leader is bringing their team together on a regular basis, how how do you start to not have culture and engagement be a separate thing or entity, but how does that then just really start to get talked about as a normal part of how we do business? There are times when I think it's really important to, to have that, like you said, the reflection time where there's a larger chunk of time, whether it's a half day or a full day, possibly even off-site, where people get that time to reflect. And I think that that's really important to be able to, to think about the business. 
kind of that in the working in the business or on the business, sometimes it, to take that time to pause is really important. And so I think it some of some of that what's best is actually really dependent on the company and the culture and even where they're at in their their growth. This always gets to be a little tricky. I always kind of wonder what other people think is who should be involved in in these kind of sessions because I've seen organizations where. It's clearly leadership, right? Leadership yep. go and they do these things and then they basically, maybe sometimes, let everyone else in <laughs> on what they decided, right? Or what they talked yep. about. Sometimes they, uh, maybe it's a particular group that really needs this, uh, you know, maybe sales is fine, but customer service is struggling. And so maybe they bring in the, the entire group and they work on the, these kinds of things. And then I've, the third option I've, I've seen a lot of is big companies will assign a team of people that represent a cross-section of the company. So you have, you know, some leaders, some non-leaders, some, you know, different departments. And they sort of put them in charge of thinking about these things and and maybe even uh, driving particular initiatives for a period of time. One organization I saw, they bas- you know, basically you have to apply to be on this committee and you get to be on it for two years and you yeah. drive the culture for two years inside of an organization, then you're off. You know, you, you, yeah. it's not something you have to do anymore. So I'm kind of wondering what you've seen, what you find is most effective. Uh, and maybe, maybe I've missed one that uh, would be important to consider as well. Keeping your culture, you know, going, keeping engagement high, really making sure you're staying on top of it. You know, is there a formula in your your mind uh, as to the what's the right grouping of people that should be, you know, getting together and thinking about this and, and doing those things on a regular basis. Yeah, thank you. So I think companies are kind of like fingerprints. There's really kind of no two that are exactly the same. And so I think depending on size as well, that I think it really has to be what works for them and their culture. I love the idea that there's um, there's a bit more of a of a grassroots approach to to culture and to engagement where people feel a sense of responsibility for their own experience and their own engagement. I think the worst thing you can do is have the entire like company culture or even a department culture dependent on one person. Because what happens if and when that person leaves? Then culture either goes by the wayside or, um, you know, things tend to fall apart. And so I think like that kind of dispersed sense of leadership around, around culture is important. And so that people also feel that sense of responsibility and accountability for their, their own experience, their own engagement. What am I doing to find out information that I might need to feel more engaged, to better understand how my work fits into the vision of the company and the goals that we're working towards and how this is actually improving X, Y, or Z. But on the whole, I think there can be somebody in senior leadership that's may have overall responsibility or accountability for that. But ultimately, I think there needs to somehow be a just so so that that person has a lens and a view of how this is unfolding in our company. But ultimately, I, you know, I think the best way to do it is for people to be a sense of accountability and responsibility for their own experience, as well as to have those cheerleaders or champions or however you want to describe them or call them that also have have a piece or a part in creating and, and supporting the culture. Yeah, and that and that's important. And I guess maybe the, the overall, uh, the overarching, I guess, ish thing might be just that they're doing it, right? And yeah. to your point, that 
Yes. Yeah. Like that fingerprint example, everyone's a little different in how they do it and who, who does it. And, but it's a matter of doing it. And I, that might be the biggest issue yeah. I see inside organizations is they're not intentionally doing it. It's not something, I, I guess it's almost like, you know, well, we, we better go buy groceries. And then all of a sudden it's, you know, geez, why do we have no groceries? Well, because you didn't go grocery shopping. You didn't <laughs> actually go and like do what the things you need to do to make sure you have food. Most of the time, most of us wouldn't have that issue, wouldn't open the refrigerator and be shocked to see there's no food in there. And yet that happens with organizations all the time. Like they're shocked. What do you mean people are unhappy? Well, we haven't done anything really for engagement yeah. in two years. We did that one thing two years ago, but nothing since then. And then they're surprised about it. So, And then there was probably no follow-up from whatever it was that they did do two years ago, <laughs> which you know leaves people even more reluctant to do something again. Right. And you end up with a culture, whether you like it or not, you're going to have a culture. But it depends on whether it's a culture that you've been intentional about creating or one that's been created by default, kind of just, it, you know, it's occurred. Yeah. And that's it. That's important for people to understand is they have a culture and you, <laughs> yep. <laughs> good, bad or otherwise, and you yep. can either direct it or not direct it. Um, I, you know, and I think a lot of uh, and being honest about what your culture is, too. And there's some some big organizations, uh, you know, we won't get into a debate about them right now uh, <laughs> by name. But, you know, really tried to say they had one culture. And, you know, we, we started to hear things. You start to find out that they really had another because they weren't being honest about what was really going on or they didn't really care about what was going on. And it ended up hurting their brand and hurting themselves. So it, it's really is something that has to be intentional. People look at change. I mean, I think Part, part of culture, part of engagement is about changing, in my mind, about constantly looking at it and you know, testing and prodding and poking and thinking about where you need to be tomorrow because it, it is different. An organization is often like having children where they it grows and it changes and, and your approach has to change. You don't parent your teenager like you do a five-year-old, although yes. they feel like, feel like five-year-olds sometimes. <laughs> they have moments. <laughs> they have moments. And so we have to constantly be thinking about that. But, you know, that management, change management sort of starts with leadership. But, but what are some of the ways we can encourage employees to really buy in and be a part of that process as well inside the organization? Yeah, um, that word buy-in, right? Um, <laughs> for me, that's a bit like, it's like, I always notice I have a bit of a, like a reaction to that word buy-in because it's, it's almost like it has a bit of a tone of compliance, I guess, for right, me right, in right. that. How do we make um, people do what we want them to do? That's what we're really saying, <laughs> right? <laughs> if only, if anybody knows how to do that. I think that really change comes down to communication. And I think oftentimes we, um, what I've noticed in companies a lot is we're not really great at really articulating the why of the change. We may give people numbers. We may um, do it as kind of like uh, a summary of data or something like that. So we need to change because, you know, the population is changing and, you know, our baby boomers are creating this wave or whatever it is. And it's, it's maybe factual. It may all very well be true. But in terms of connecting people to the change, to the reason for the change, and how that all connects in with the vision and their work, I don't think we're very good at doing that. I think leaders think that they have communicated about the change and the why of the change because they've given data or it just seems to make logical sense as to what to do. But that doesn't necessarily mean that people are... Um, are on board with that. And so I think one of the things is around communication and really being able to articulate 
the importance of the change, uh, almost like a storytelling aspect of it that really connects to people's hearts around why something needs to be different, especially thinking about like larger transformational kind of change uh, that can be difficult for people to kind of wrap their heads around. And so I think the communication piece is so important. And, you know, sending an email uh, with an attachment doesn't mean that you've communicated. It means that you've sent an email with some information in it. <laughs> right. And so how as leaders do they then take that and have conversations with their team about what's the impact on of this on you? What's the impact on, on this uh, uh, for our team, for our work? What are we excited about around this? And what are we not feeling so great about? And how do we start to, you know, shift some of that? So rather than getting buy-in, which kind of, as I said, feels like a bit compliance to me, you start to connect with people's hearts and and heads both around why something needs to happen. It's really fascinating when people say they've communicated something, you know, but concerned that their employees didn't hear, they didn't listen. And I've often asked if it was an important piece of communication, how many different ways did you communicate it? Yeah. And it's usually just, it's one, right? I, I told them, I emailed them, you know, we had a meeting on it. And it's like, you know, if it's important, you're probably got to do all those things, you know. And more than once. And more than once. You got your <laughs> verbal learners, you got your written ones, you got your ones that are just so busy, they're hardly, you know, not because they don't want to pay attention, but, you know, they've got so much going on that you might have to hit them a couple times. So, and, and it's, you know, it's a matter of, do you want to be effective? Do you want the, the communication to happen? And do you want the change to happen? Um, yeah. Or do you want to just be passive aggressive that you sent one email and no one read it and that they should have read it, but they didn't. Yeah. So it's, it's fascinating with the dynamic there, I guess. So, yeah. And the, well, and the assumption that I, as a leader have sent an email and therefore everybody has read it, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> you know, also says a little bit about the kind of culture. Fair enough. Like send out that email, make sure that, you know, that information is out there. And then as a senior leader, how are you supporting your leaders to go further that information and have those conversations that are necessary and to continue to communicate it like ad nauseum, probably. Well, if any leader wants to really test whether or not people are reading their emails, one thing I have done, I only send maybe one or two emails a year that are, you know, hey, this is, you know, threat level midnight, important, everyone needs to read this. I tried not to send those kind of emails on purpose, but, you know, every once in a while it happens. And at the end, I will usually put something quirky, like, please reply back and tell me your favorite kind of bear. People who read the whole email reply back with their favorite kind of bear or alligator or whatever stupid thing you want to put in there. But it's shocking to me what percentage of people, and there have been, it's been very, I've had times when 10% wrote back, I've had times when 50% wrote back, but still at my best, 50% was what yeah. wrote back. Yeah. And that meant at least half, and most of the times, far more than half of the people never made it to the end of the email to read my quirky thing to reply back. <laughs> Uh, which means they didn't read the whole thing. They didn't get the whole message. And I clearly have to continue to communicate yeah. whatever that important issue is. Um, and, and I think you're right. People just assume that as the leader, especially I'm the CEO or I'm the yeah. owner of the company, I send this email. Everyone's going to read it because I would. But that's not always the case. Well, it's clearly not the case. So yeah. <laughs> I, l I love that. I love that. I'm going to suggest that to other people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you can't overuse it because if people start, you know, knowing it's going to happen all the time and they just go to the <laughs> bottom and that they don't read anything. And just, right. Use it sparingly, but it is fun. So. Is there a book you're reading right now that we might uh, check out? Oh, you know, I have a lot on my bookshelf, but um, like a business, a good business book. Any um, book. 
it could be anything. We we've had children's books on this show. We've had <laughs> biographies. We've had romance books. We've had it all. So whatever you're reading that you're finding exciting today, that's the that's the best answer. Well, I don't like that's a <laughs> that's a bit of a other perspective of me. <laughs> you're gonna get if I share that. Uh-uh. How about um, how about I tell you the one that I'm gonna read next? Annie Brown's new one, Dare to Lead. Oh, fantastic! I think you'll love it. I, I, I love her. And it, yeah, if you, anyone that likes her, this is probably her best. I think it's her one of her best works for two reasons. One, she really kind of collects and brings her other works down in a much, much more summaried way, in a, I think a much tighter way than she has in the past. And also, this is the first time that I really felt like she got it. And what I mean by that is, in the past, she has not had an entire team of people. She's not. You know, her previous book, she wasn't really managing like 50 or 60 people. Um, she now has an empire, right? Mm. And she admits in the book and many times, I used to say this, and now I know it's this. Mm. And her perspective changed a little bit based on being a researcher and understanding this to being a the CEO of this, right? And having to do it every day. Oh. It gave her some different perspectives that really, at least for me, went deeper. Not that she was wrong in the past, it was just sometimes she would say things that didn't quite, it didn't Lance, resonate yeah. with me. Yep. And and this time, this book, it really did. And in the book clubs that I do, I think it was eight out of 10 people's favorite book last year. So I think wow. they like it. Fantastic. Yep. Even more excited to read it now. Thank you Good. For, that, Good. for sharing that. Yeah. And anyone who listens to Audible, she does read it and she does actually kind of go off script a little bit in the Audible, which is kind of fun. Not, not a whole lot of authors do that. So if you do the Audible, it's kind of fun to listen to. I did the Audible for Braving the Wilderness, which I really enjoyed. Yeah. Enjoyed having her voice. <laughs> well, how can people uh, reach out to you, find out more, get a get a hold of you if they're interested in having someone help them out with, with their, their human-related issues? <laughs> um, well, certainly my website, pamschmidt.ca, because I am in Canada, and uh, is easy, and then um, LinkedIn. Well, that should Always be easy on. enough. I yeah. should be able to find you. So do you work primarily? I should have asked you this early on, but is okay. pri- most of your work in Canada or do you, do you work in the States as well or other places? I have not worked in the U.S. I would love to, um, but I need a special um, permit or something to be able to work in the U.S. <laughs> so I haven't I haven't gone down that road yet. Special dispensation. I'm sure. I'm sure our current president would be happy to grant it. <laughs> Just oh, get in line and apply. The government's open now, so you can apply. Um, sorry for that, everybody. Okay, so <laughs> thank you so much for being back on the show again. We had a lot of fun. Thank you and, for having uh, me. I'm, sh- I'm sure we'll uh, cross paths again or have you back on at some point. I as- hope so. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Have a great right. day. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Hopefully, you've gained something you can use in your own career. Next week, I'll have two more great guests, Rob uh, Catalano, the chief engagement officer and co-founder of Work Tango. That's a cool name, Work Tango. And Richard Mattern, president of the Mattern Group. So until then, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today. You've been listening to Talent Talk Radio, brought to you by People G2.